chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. We're considering today God's covenant with Noah. God's covenant with Noah, having made one covenant back in chapter 6, a covenant promise that God would bring Noah through the flood. God now makes a second covenant, which we'll consider in due course today. The big events change everything. Last month marked 110 years since the sinking of Titanic, uh, the Belfast-made ship that was supposed to be unsinkable. 1,504 people died when Titanic hit an iceberg and sank on her maiden voyage. And it led to public inquiries both in Britain and in the United States, which in turn led to changes about lifeboat requirements and the creation of an international ice patrol in the North Atlantic Ocean, all in an effort, of course, to avoid anything so catastrophic happening again. Public inquiries will eventually begin in our country to consider our government's handling of the pandemic and what lessons need to be learned for the future. Big events often lead to big changes. Genesis 9 marks the beginning of a new era. The flood is over, the single most world-changing event in history other than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The flood, of course, was no accident. As I mentioned, it was God's uh, decisive and planned judgment on a world rampant with human selfishness, violence, idolatry, and lust. And although human sin still existed after the flood, God decided to show patience and tolerance to human beings. If you look what he says in Genesis 8:21, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So God recognizes there that sin remains in man's heart, and yet he's not going to act in the way that he did over the flood. Neither will I ever again strike down every creature. And so the end of the flood marks a new era, a new beginning for, the creator, for, for creation. And this new era is going to bring some changes, changes that still affect your life and mine on a daily basis. And so we want to consider the changes that came as a result of the flood and the new beginning uh, that are described for us here in Genesis chapter 9. Uh, Two main things to think about today in particular. First of all, uh, God's laws for the post-flood world. God's laws for the post-flood world. And two interrelated laws that God lays down here. Again, this is a new beginning for all humanity. And everything that God says to Noah in this passage we just read applies to all human beings forever. And so the first law that God laid down in the post-flood world is that life must be allowed to flourish. Life must be allowed and encouraged to flourish. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So there's another echo of Genesis chapter 1. We've seen this all throughout the the flood account, particularly chapters 8 and 9. That's the same command that God gave to Adam and Eve. And he gives it again here now to Noah and his family. Be fruitful and multiply. He says it again in verse 7. Team on the earth and multiply in it. 
And he'd already said this back in chapter 8, verse 17, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So God keeps repeating these words, be fruitful and multiply. Why does he keep repeating these words? Why does God in his grace and mercy command and encourage human beings, sinful though they are, to be fruitful and to multiply and the animals as well? Quite simply, friends, because our God is a life-giving God. Our God is the creator and sustainer of all life. He takes pleasure in the nourishment and the flourishing of all life on the earth. In Genesis chapter 1, God simply spoke. And day after day, life came into existence. Vegetation and plants and animals. And here again, after the flood, God speaks. And he tells Noah and his sons' families to go and create life and nurture life and, and put a, a high regard and respect upon that, upon uh, more life coming into the world. Notice chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons. Again, just like chapter 1, verse 28 with Adam and Eve, where it says that God blessed them. God here is sending them out, commissioning them, assuring them that they can and they will and they should uh, enable life to flourish. Related to that then, a second law that God lays down for the post-flood world is that all life, especially human life, must be respected. All life, especially human life, must be respected. The first real drastic change to life after the flood uh, is announced by God in verse 3. If you look at it with me. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, God says to Noah. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. So here God announces to Noah that the new head of the human race, that human beings are now permitted to eat any kind of animal. Before the flood, God had only given fruit and vegetation to Adam and Eve. Uh, now God announces that meat can become part of the human diet. I think I'm right in saying that we have uh, one or two vegetarians in the congregation. Uh, certainly there are more vegans and vegetarians now than there were uh, 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, it's fine for someone to choose to, to be vegetarian, whether that's for health reasons or for conscience reasons. But you can't claim any biblical reason for being a vegetarian. God declares here that human beings are free to eat meat if they choose. But nonetheless, nonetheless, notice that there is still to be respect shown for all life. Look at verse 4. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And this went on to be one of the most repeated and foundational laws in the Old Testament, if you were to read through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you see this principle coming out over and over again. Of course, there were countless uh, animal sacrifices offered up over the years uh, by God's people as part of their worship in the Old Testament. But over and over again, uh, this command concerning the respect that was to be shown for, for animal life, for, for any kind of life, was, uh, was repeated. Leviticus 17.11 for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. 
It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So God was teaching his people there, friends, over and over again, that the ending of life, of any life, and the shedding of blood is costly. And it's to be done in a, in a respectful way if it is done at all. Animal blood, of course, was used in sacrifices of atonement for God's people. That sacrifice that symbolized the, the sin of the people being carried away. And that blood symbolized that a, a price, a high price had to be paid for the people's sin to be forgiven. Blood symbolized life. Blood, in, in a sense then, you could say was sacred. And God is saying here that even animal blood is not to be shed lightly. Yes, human beings have the right to eat animal meat, but there is still to be respect for all life on the earth. And of course, that's even more the case for human life. If you look at verse 5, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning, God says, from every beast I will require it, and from man. God's saying there that even the animals who take human life, God will hold them to account for it. Verse 2 says that the fear of human beings will be in the animals. And so even animals that are perhaps stronger or faster than human beings, there's this respect and there's this dread of human beings within animals. Occasionally you do hear of animals, of course, killing human beings, but it's actually very, very rare. There's this dread of human beings within animals. And then look also at verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And the original language there poetically emphasizes the justice that is to be done if someone is guilty of murder. That if you shed someone's blood, your own blood will be shed. Life for life, wound for wound, tooth for tooth, as God's word said years later. Now, some interpreters suggest that God is, is really making an observation there in verse 6 rather than laying down a law. In other words, some people would suggest that when God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, that what he's really saying is that this, it's not necessarily what God wants to happen, it's just what will happen. That he's saying that if you take someone's life, the chances are that someone will take your life as an act of revenge. And so that that in itself should be a deterrent, that that in itself is a reason why you shouldn't take someone's life. But that's not what the text is saying, friends. That's simply not the weight of, uh, and the implication of God's words. God is declaring here not what might happen, but what should happen if one human being takes the life of another. God is saying that the murderer's life is to be taken as punishment. Only God gives life, therefore only God has the right to end life. And what he is saying here, and Paul, the Apostle Paul gets into more detail about this in Romans chapter 13. God is saying that he will end the life of any murderer via the means of human government and human justice. You remember Cain's petulant response when God asked him, after Cain had killed his brother Abel, God said to him, where is your brother? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? 
Well, if you look at verse 5 in your Bibles, where it says fellow man in the ESV, the word there literally is brother in the original. God says, from his brother, I will require a reckoning. So am I my brother's keeper? God says, yes. Human beings are accountable for the life of one another. All life, especially human life, is to be respected and protected. So these are the laws that God laid down for this new beginning in human history, friends. Laws, by the way, that still apply today. Life is to be encouraged to flourish, to multiply, and human life in particular is to flourish in the context of families. Because remember, God said all these things to Noah and his sons who were already married. And so life is to be respected and to flourish within the family structure. So friends, God was giving to mankind here the the basic building blocks for human society to flourish, for the effects of sin uh, to be limited and to be restrained in this new world. The sad thing is, of course, that on the whole, human beings, we're not paying much attention to these laws today, are we? In our country and many others, various groups are making it their mission to destroy the family and all that goes with it. Legislation regarding divorce, redefinitions of marriage, the lack of virtually any encouragement or incentive for couples to remain committed to one another, the often idolatrous pursuit of career and money and possessions at the expense of raising children, these are all man-made obstacles to the flourishing of human life. There's not the level of respect for human life that God's word says there should be. You might be aware that some of the more radical voices shouting about climate change today also believe that the world is overpopulated, that human beings should take radical action to control or even stop our birth rates altogether. One organization now exists called Stop Having Kids Uh, You can visit their website if you felt so inclined. I wouldn't think you would, but stophavingkids.org and they'll tell you why human beings are irresponsible for continuing to reproduce. Unsurprisingly, it's a group that is radically pro-abortion. And of course, there's that, abortion. Abortion on demand, as we now have it in the UK and Ireland. An election fought last week, lots of babble and waffle about border polls and protocols, barely a mention about the need to protect human life in the womb. We're willing to pull millions of unborn babies apart, limb from limb in some cases in their mother's wombs, but we're not willing to have our governments end the lives of adult men who commit premeditated murder. That's where we are and as a society today. And we cannot expect our society to thrive if we ignore or put down or despise the basic building blocks that God has given us. Marriage, family, respect for human life from conception right through to, towards the end of life on earth. At our synod this year, our denomination will undertake what's called covenant renewal. 
you might have been reading about it in the church magazine. We'll be thinking much more about it later this year and, and what it means and why we're doing it. But part of the reason that we're doing it is to provide a public witness to repent as a church and on behalf of our nation for the ways in which we have ignored God's laws and to recognize the severe damage that has been done to our land by doing so. And we hope and pray that that might be a witness and that God might revive and bless his church and even our nation as we would do that. So friends, we should be in constant prayer for God's laws, these laws in particular that we're thinking about today concerning life, that they would be more widely known and respected and eagerly obeyed. God blessed Noah and his sons, Genesis 9 verse 1. Here was a new humanity, wondering how they were to live, how society was to begin again. And God says, this is the way. Human life is to be allowed to flourish and human life must be respected. And we should pray that more and more that would be the case in our world today. So God's laws for the post-flood world. Secondly, and finally, God's covenant with the post-flood world. God's covenant with the post-flood world. What is a covenant? It's always important to remind ourselves. It's uh, one of those terms that gets bandied about and we perhaps don't always think about what it means. A covenant is a binding promise. And in this case here, it's a binding promise that God has made, promising that he will do certain things for us and that we are then called to honor and obey him as a result. Now, of course, and and this is crucially important, God doesn't need to make covenants with us. If God has said he'll do something, we can trust him to do it. He's God. He always keeps his word. We can trust him to do whatever he says he will do. You see, God in his grace, knowing that we are frail, knowing that our faith is, is limited at times, he gives us extra reasons to trust him. He additionally binds himself to more promises about what he will do for us. And that's what he does here for Noah and his family. He graciously repeats and adds over and over again to the covenant promise that he makes with them here. And what is exactly the promise that he makes? Look at verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God says, what you've just witnessed, what I've just done as an act of judgment on the world, you're never going to see anything like that again. Yes, of course, we know there are what people call natural disasters in the world today, but they're nothing on the scale of what the flood was. We thought about that last week. And God says, you're never going to see the like of that again. This is my promise to you. And again, this is why the climate change activists are so mistaken. The world is not overpopulated. And man-made climate change, so-called, is not going to be what ends the world. God will bring the world to a close when the Lord Jesus returns, not before. And God keeps repeating here over and over again to Noah and his family, that this is a covenant that he is making. Verse 8, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Verse 11, I establish my covenant. Verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established with you. Over and over again, God promises here 
that this is going to be the case, that the world is never going to be destroyed in the way that it was again. And that's an act of mercy and grace on God's part, friends, because human beings are still full of sin. On the whole, we still rebel against him and, uh, and go our own way, and yet God says the world will never face a calamity like that again. I want to think in particular for a moment about the sign of God's covenant. The sign of God's covenant. We've seen what his covenant is. He's never going to destroy the world again. Uh, what sign did he give to reinforce this? When God makes a covenant promise, as he does all through scripture, he always attaches a sign or a picture to it to help us remember it and to understand it. Signs, of course, point to something else. As you came here this morning, you followed signs for Dremore. You didn't pull over and stop at the sign. You, you went in the direction that the sign was pointing. A wedding ring symbolizes what should be unending love between a husband and a wife uh, in the covenant of marriage. What sign did God give when he made this covenant with Noah? Well, look at verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Verse 16, this is the, the sheet for the boys and girls today. When my bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh. The rainbow. Boys and girls, I'm sure some of you, when the pandemic first started a couple of years ago, maybe some of you drew rainbows during the first lockdown and, and put them up uh, in the windows in your house. Lots of people did that. And those rainbows, of course, gave people hope, a bit of encouragement. It was something to cheer people up at what was a very sad and discouraging time. But, of course, there's far more to the rainbow than that. The rainbow is a sign. It is a picture for us of God's covenant, originally given to Noah, but that still applies to all of us today. And there's a few reasons why the rainbow is a particularly fitting sign of the covenant. First of all, it's a beautiful sign. The rainbow is absolutely beautiful. It's a very sad person who isn't even a little bit touched, uh, who doesn't smile when they see a rainbow. We point them out to each other in the car. Our children, as I say, draw pictures of them because they're beautiful. Uh, those seven gorgeous colors, that, that beautiful shape stretching from one horizon to the other. Uh, the colors lighting up a dark cloudy sky. It's a beautiful sight. And it tells us, doesn't it, friends, how much more beautiful and glorious and majestic must be the God who made the rainbow and who keeps his promises. It's interesting that often in the Bible when someone gets a vision of God's glory, something like a rainbow is part of the vision. We read earlier Ezekiel 1.28 uh, describing God's glory like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the glory of the Lord. And so, friends, the beauty of the rainbow speaks to all human beings about a far more beautiful God, a God who keeps his promises. And don't worry, it doesn't matter who tries to hijack the rainbow, and they don't even include all the colors of the rainbow, so they've made a mess of it anyway, but it doesn't matter who tries to hijack the rainbow or for what purpose. 
The rainbow is God's and it is beautiful. A beautiful sign of the covenant. It's also a natural sign, of course. It's a natural sign. There is, of course, a relatively simple scientific explanation for why a rainbow appears. And not really being much of a scientist, I really should have checked this before I wrote it. But hopefully I'm getting this right. When sunlight goes through the prism of raindrops, the seven, the seven different colors of light that make up the rainbow are produced. Hopefully I got that right. And of course that's true. That is, I hope, the scientific explanation for the appearing of the rainbow. But who made the sunshine? Who made the raindrops? God did. Science is possible because of the design that God has built into everything, including sunlight and rain. And in fact, as you study the covenants of the Bible, what you find is that God almost always uses something that already existed as a symbol or a picture of his covenant. Think of the Lord's Supper, for example. The bread and wine that we use at the Lord's table is ordinary bread and wine. We could use it for any other meal. But when we come to the Lord's table, it has added symbolic significance. And similarly, friends, the rainbow has been given added significance by God. It's a beautiful, natural sign, and it's also a regular sign. It's a regular sign. Look at verse 14. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant Imagine how Noah and his sons and his family might have been feeling the first time there was a really bad, heavy rainstorm after the flood. They might have been tempted to think, is it going to happen again? Is the world going to be destroyed? How long is this rain going to last? But then in the midst of the dark, cloudy sky, as the rain begins to pass, the rainbow appears. And they think, oh yes, God's never going to destroy the world that way again. And thousands of years later, friends, it still appears regularly. And when we see it, we can be reassured the world is in God's hands. The world will not be destroyed by COVID or climate change or conflict or crisis because God will keep his promise. So the sign of the covenant is the rainbow And then just the last thing to consider in regard to the covenant with the post-flood world is the extent of God's covenant, the extent of it. Who was this made with, this covenant? Look again at Genesis 9, verse 8. Then God said, notice, to who? To Noah and his sons with him. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. Look at this. It is for every beast of the earth that came out of the ark. God used the ark, a refuge, a safe place to bring not only Noah and his family, but all creatures through the flood and into this new world. And God's covenant is not just with Noah, not just with Noah's wife or his sons. It's with all humanity that will come after them. And we'll think about how All all the races of the world came from Noah's sons, God willing, next week. And so this covenant applies, friends, to you and to me, to everyone before us, to everyone who will come after us. The rainbow is 
part of the evidence of the natural world for everyone in the world that God exists and that he should be worshipped. We thought about this earlier as we sang from Psalm 19 and from Psalm 8 that all of us are image bearers of God and that the creation, the created world outside there all around us is part of the evidence to all people that God exists and that he is to be worshipped and praised for the God that he is. And the rainbow is part of that. Look again at verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And so ultimately, friends, the rainbow is a sign of God's covenant with everyone and everything. A promise that he has made to preserve and to protect and to prosper every part of his creation. But as much as the rainbow reminds us to respect life in this world, it reminds us of God's care for life in this world here and now, the rainbow, friends, is also a reminder to us that a new world is coming. The rainbow is a statement that God wants better for all of his creation than the state our world is in even now after the flood. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 8 verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That's the the sin that's in this world. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul's saying here that the forgiveness of our sins, the redeeming work of Jesus, friends, is going to have an impact on the whole world, on all creation. Just as Noah and his family emerged from the ark into a new world and a fresh start, so those of us who are in Christ will one day emerge into a perfect world, the last fresh start, a world full of beauty and life, a fresh eternity. Jesus says in Revelation 21 verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. Notice that, all things. Flowers, plants, mountains, rivers, animals, birds, and yes, his people. That's the ultimate hope of the rainbow, friends. Life after judgment, beauty and glory following destruction. And that's what Jesus Christ offers to needy sinners. As we've thought about several times already these past few weeks, when Jesus went to the cross, he endured the wrath of God raining down upon him, just as the rain fell down upon the ark of Noah. And Jesus took that punishment, that judgment, friends, so that we wouldn't have to, so that we would be sheltered from it, just as Noah and his family were sheltered in the ark. He has shed his precious blood in sacrifice for us, so that we can enjoy new life in a new world. So what do you see when you look at a rainbow? Just a pretty accident of nature? Or a sign from your creator, your God, that you can trust him, that you should call upon him while you still can? There's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but it is a beautiful reminder a signpost to us that a gracious God who has sent the Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious Savior, has provided a sacrifice for us so that we can enjoy everlasting life.
Amen. Let's stand as we come to the